Mike Wong here, the host of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. You are about to listen to the initial reactions of five scientists and one historian to the premiere of Star Trek Discovery. Now, I should tell you that this recording is easily the worst quality recording so far, because we're basically in a common room in Caltech graduate student housing. It's very wooden, very echoey, and it's a common area, so you may hear some random clicks, footsteps, even some other voices in the background. You know, to be honest, the other episodes aren't super high quality either. We just try to find a quiet office or conference room, not a sound studio by any means, but this time it's really not ideal. But I wanted to get our immediate reactions down on record, so we just did it right there after we had watched the second episode. Hopefully, the stimulating content of the conversation will make up for the slightly lower audio quality. Also, I must warn you, I am a little less coherent than usual. It may be because I was still a little tipsy on Romulan Ale. Yes, we had Romulan Ale at our Discovery launch party, plus homemade Star Trek cookies and cakes. One of our attendees dressed up in a TOS redshirt uniform. A couple of others had swept back eyebrows and pointy ears. I was wearing my Star Trek Discovery pin Everybody was so excited, and we watched the first two episodes together, talked during the commercial breaks about it, because the first episode was aired on CBS, of course, and there were commercials, which we just muted and then had really interesting conversations about what was going on. And then we watched the second one, streamed it on CBS All Access, went straight through, no commercials, because I paid that premium price, it was worth it, and we had a blast. So let's transport ourselves back in time to that moment where the second episode had just ended. Uh, Chris, what's up? Nothing much, man. Just got finished watching Star Trek. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to an episode of Strange New Worlds. Unlike one that we've ever done before, we just finished watching the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery and literally turned the TV off Oh, yeah. Now, <laughs> and we are ready to just say what we thought of these first two episodes, but first we should introduce ourselves. As you know, I'm Mike Wong, I'm the host of this podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Gao, I'm a postdoc at UC Berkeley, formerly of Caltech. Peter uh, was on episodes two and one and two and... The last two. The last two, which would be 13 and 14. Right. Cool. And then Desun? Hi, my name's Desun. Very, very long childhood friend of Michael. Yeah, Dyson was on episodes. Is it the history? I line? don't remember which one. Six and seven, I think. You were on six and seven, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Dyson is a uh, social scientist, a historian. So, we had some very interesting conversations with him. We have some two, two new, uh, well, they're new to Caltech, and they're also new to Strange New Worlds, so do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, um, I'm Ida. I'm a first-year graduate student at Caltech in planetary science. Excellent. Welcome, Ida. I'm Shreyas. I'm also a first-year graduate student in planetary science. Shreyas. Excellent. Uh, howdy. I'm Cecilia Sanders, and I'm a rising second-year uh, graduate student in planetary science at Caltech. Yeah. And I was on episode... 
eight and nine, eight I nine. think. Yeah, yes. eight and nine. Yeah. Um, so uh, welcome back to the old folks. Welcome to the new ones. Wow, Star Trek Discovery, first two episodes. That was something very different. Just real quick, because we haven't met Ida and Treas yet. What are your backgrounds with Star Trek? Is this like the first exposure ever? Have you seen it all, bits and pieces? Um, I grew up watching some Next Generation, and okay. I'm actually pretty fond of that series. I don't have much experience with other series. This is like, for all intents and purposes, my first exposure. Like, I watched, I think, the first movie, and like only like really half of it. And so this is definitely like totally new to this. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. First movie meaning the one that came out a few years ago? Or yeah. like, okay, so Star Trek 2009. Yeah. We call it. Okay, okay, so I think we're just gonna run with this. So Ida said that she is a fan of the next generation. And honestly, I want to go back and watch some next generation right now because I wanna just like cuddle up with Worf and be like, I'm your friend, we're not at war. <laughs> oh, come on, Klingons and humans are like, you're on the same side, right? So let's just talk about the Klingons because I think the Klingons were so different. Peter Gow, you have a shirt that says keep calm and cling on right now, so you're obviously a Klingon fan. What are your just like gut reactions to what you saw on the Klingons today? Well, they are clearly not calm this time around. Uh, <laughs> so I'm still gathering my thoughts. There are lots and lots. On the very surface, I really appreciated that they used Klingon. They spoke Klingon throughout yes. the two episodes. Uh, of course, except when they talked to the, the Federation, uh, that's fine. But among them, they spoke Klingon and so on. And I just think that's really, really, it really adheres to, it shows that they really respect what came before. You know, this entire language is that was created for, I believe, Star Trek Three, and used, you know, a little bit throughout the rest, or a lot, but sporadically throughout the rest of canon. But I think this is really the first time we had extended Klingon talking across episodes. Yeah, and there is a Klingon dictionary out there, and it is my goal to have a linguistics-themed podcast one of these days, after I actually look through how the Klingon language is you know, put together and what the syntax is, and just talk about language in general, because that's a really fascinating topic to me. And also Elise, who is unfortunately in Edinburgh, studying abroad this term, so wasn't able to watch this with us. But any other thoughts on the Klingons? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so say there's definitely a tendency in science fiction to simplify alien cultures and make it seem like there's a singular, uh, a singular Klingon mindset or a singular Romulan mindset or something. So I really appreciate when Star Trek complicates that and makes it clear that you know whether it's on a single planet or throughout an entire empire, there's fractiousness, there's conflict, there's concepts of race and hereditary honor and everything that we get to see. So I just, I'm really in love with sort of the complexity of the Klingon plot here and the idea that, um, oh my goodness, to, not, not Tecumseh. I just love that Tecumseh is not just a, well, wasn't just, Spoiler. Yeah, but we should say, if you haven't watched the first two episodes, you should watch them before listening to this podcast. All right, you know, we will spoil everything because we're going to talk about everything. So go ahead, keep going, Cecilia. But yeah, just the idea that he wasn't just, here's like big, bad, crazy, evil dude who can't be reasoned with. You know, maybe there's reasons he can't be reasoned with. He's clearly had an incredibly difficult life. He is a pariah. He's an outcast of 
the intra-Klingon version of the feder of the Federation, and it's not just that he's trying to prove himself because he's interested in power. He's extremely loyal to the memory of his father and the memory of his house, and just like believes with a religious zeal that like all of that hardship like has been for something. I appreciated him reaching out to this other dude who not so subtle social commentary, like, oh, different skin color than the other than the other Klingons, son of no one. Clearly he's been disowned by his original house, which they sort of hinted at in that meeting with like the Klingon council, um, which one of the uh, the Klingon leaders was his actual father. Maybe. I might be reading too much into that. Mm. But like the idea that like Takuvma is he's incredibly sympathetic to the outcasts. It looks like all of his acolytes or whatever are somehow have been cast off from the rest of Klingon society somehow and yet they're still super loyal to the idea of Klingonness. And I just yeah. uh, like that's gonna be really complicated and interesting and I'm like excited to see how that how that history and how that mythology develops in particular. I'm a little obsessed with them. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Other thoughts? No, it's like when he kept saying the line that we come in peace, that's a line. They always lie about that. I'm very interested in seeing, like, what is his version of Cleon Federation relationship? Like, what happened between now and, like, what was, like, during this war or something? That when he cited was the last encounter with the Federation. But he keeps on citing as if the Cleons were, like, victimized by this Federation lie. And so it's, like, really interesting, like, oh, like, what actually happened between now and their last encounter. And then in the beginning, you know, how he says, we are too, we have been too weak and too fractured and we are being encroached upon. And I think he says something to that line, encroached upon. So like, what does he mean when he's saying, oh, we need to unite as Klingons and then fight against whatever this encroachment is. Has the Federation been doing this encroachment? That's really interesting. I don't think, I've never, I didn't know the Federation was encroaching on Klingon space at this time, but from his perspective, it's probably really interesting. Yeah, and second, I think like um, uh, science fiction has this like really interesting thing or like tendency to use like the the Central Asian kind of Mongols like tribal warrior clans coming together, banding together, and then uh, becoming this huge empire. So like it happens again and again. I think like being like a warrior culture, they seem to be like nomadic. They were like traveling for thousands of years. So I think there's this kind of like that nomad tribal wanderingness that was happening, but now they're trying to settle down unite the various tribes together from different parts of like Klingon, from the Klingon Empire then unite as a single force that's, and become the Mongol Empire. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. I, I didn't really pick up on that trope in, in sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently there are 24 Klingon houses. They've been fractured for generations. The Federation last encountered the Klingons 100 years ago, which places that in the Enterprise squarely. Squarely. So, uh, you know, the, the last time we saw the Klingons in an episode of Star Trek was Affliction and Divergence, which was the episodes in Enterprise where the Klingons lost their forehead ridges <laughs> to explain the sort of plot phenomenon of the original series Klingons not having any forehead ridges. So I, I really hoped that, because I knew from the promos and the trailers that the Klingons were trying to establish themselves, reestablish themselves, and uh, have this sort of like Klingon first, what is Klingon identity? We need to push for that. Klingon-ness, as Cecilia said. And so I thought bringing this back to a scientific sort of thing was, oh, okay. So 
obviously the Klingons in the trailers had the forehead ridges. Maybe there was some turmoil in the empire. Maybe the empire sort of receded into its own borders, didn't want to show its face to its neighbors because they had been transformed at the genetic level to look more human and be less aggressive. But this group of Klingons maybe tried to maintain their Klingon-ness, didn't accept the drip genetic transformations, tried to remain pure Klingons, quote-unquote. But that actually didn't happen at all. Because, and I'm a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I know. I kind of got the feeling looking at so like Takuma and all of his and mm -hmm. all of his acolytes seem like they have extremely like structured faces, mm -hmm. very exaggerated like ribs and everything. And I just felt like looking at the Klingon council, though we were looking at them as holograms, like they seemed less bumpy mm -hmm. and ridgy. Like I don't know if there's like a I don't know if it has to do with the same with that exact storyline, or if there's, um, or if there's actually just like a class and caste stratification within Klingon society, where like the less, uh, I guess, human-like their features tend to be, maybe they're like, maybe they're lower class, maybe that's you know the dead, the dead or dying houses that still look like that. So I don't, know, I don't know. I thought I like made a note in that scene. It's like, whoa, like they look really different. Okay, um, I guess because like, I was expecting them to look very human, mm, I yeah. picked up on the fact that they all had some kind of facial... They were pretty knobbly. Yeah, knobbly, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, Morrison was wearing, like, an ornament to, I feel like, to, like, resemble, like, some Klingon, Klingon-ness. Oh. It's like, is that, is that, like, hiding that the fact that the, underneath that ornament is, like, more human-looking face? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so you're giving me hope that maybe no, my yeah. theory is correct it's right still. For <laughs> Any other thoughts on Klingons before... I definitely love their aesthetic. Like, definitely, oh, yeah. uh, I'm so glad you brought up, like, this sort of sci-fi trope, sometimes executed well, sometimes executed really poorly, um, where they draw on East and Central Asian ness in order to, when they're trying to go, well, when Western, like, creative minds are trying to, oh, what would an alien civilization look like? Usually it's cobbled together some group of influences from from Asia, from Africa, from medieval Europe or whatever and they try to combine all these things like yes this is different this is exotic or something like that I really liked the aesthetic in this because I felt like it didn't look like it was just like borrowing from a bunch of different cultures it looked I like Sinclair Martin Green's comment she's like this is so beautiful this is elegant mm -hmm. and I can't even come up with good words to describe it because I don't understand these shapes and these symbols and you know, obviously, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You can definitely see influences of one thing or another, especially in, like, some of the headdresses, as you're pointing out. But, like, I liked how distinctive, how distinctive it was. And definitely, if I ever, if I become an eccentric billionaire, like, that's how, <laughs> that's, that's how I'm decorating my house. You yeah, know? yeah. With Klingon all of those ridges and gold and, like, oh. Circa 2350s. So, Tris, this is your first exposure to Star Trek besides... <laughs> the J.J. Abrams film, which yes. sort of revolutionized the look and feel of Star Trek. And this, again, revolutionizes that. What is something that you just picked up on that is in the forefront of your mind right now? So on the forefront of my mind is probably just like, it was so super high drama. And I know that like a couple of folks beforehand were saying that that's not something they're super used to with the whole like crew structure yeah. of the past series. And I don't know, I actually really, really liked this. Like, for somebody who's watching it for the first time, I got really, really hooked on a lot of the characters, which is, like, very early, which was clearly, like, not a good thing to do, 
because now I'm like distraught after the second episode. <laughs> no, I, I thought I thought their like narrative structure and like just the universe that they've created just in the first two episodes is so like full. There's so many opportunities. It's I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I guess we have to talk about the Roddenberry rule again, which is what Tris was alluding to that Gene Roddenberry supposedly laid out this underlying rule for all of Star Trek that there shouldn't be any intra-crew conflict on a Federation ship. And in the first episode, literally, we see that, like, I mean, Michael Burnham basically Vulcan neck pinches her boss, right? <laughs> that was incredible. I did not see that coming at all. lies to everyone on the bridge. Right. But... And so, well, shocker. But again, it makes for really a really compelling story, and you just want to know like what comes next for for Michael. Where does her story arc lead? She is now she left off, basically being imprisoned for life, right? What we've never seen Star Trek from this kind of angle before. Is she going to redeem herself? How? It's, it's going to be an amazing ride. So, Ida, you are here at Caltech because you want to study protoplanetary disks, right? Yeah, protoplanetary disks and possibly also exoplanet atmospheres, so maybe just like the planets themselves as well. Right. So we saw some pretty cool-looking protoplanetary <laughs> disks in this episode, or in these two episodes. In fact, the second episode was titled Battle of the Binary Stars. So there were these two stars with their disks, which will eventually become planets, and they're both forming, and they're in this gravitational dance, and there's mass being transferred here and there. And if you want to learn more, you can go back to episodes three and four, where we have Erica Carlson talking about binary stars, and Chris Balding talking about protoplanetary disks and planet formation, um, because that image was one of the first released images of Star Trek Discovery, and I was just like, somebody needs to explain this. And so that, it actually was one of the motivating things for kicking off this podcast. But Ida, what did you, so what did you think about the depiction of the protoplanetary disks? Uh, it was definitely very dramatic. I don't know, it, it sort of reminded me of like um, in Interstellar, there was all that hype about how we had like a, scientifically accurate depiction of like a, a black hole mm -hmm. and it, it seemed like very dramatic but I guess like maybe that one was more or less scientifically accurate I don't think this one was I, I yeah. felt that like a lot of the debris around the discs was like overly illuminated I can't imagine that like mm -hmm. there's no way they look like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not that bright they definitely um, uh, this suffered from that common sci-fi mistake I guess but it's used for making drama more dramatic that there's lots of rock and, you know, large asteroids very close to one another. But I, I don't know, protoplanetary disks are more dense than like the asteroid belts, right? So maybe there's a hint of truth there, but yeah, definitely for, for the for the hype. Okay. The size distribution. The size distribution. Definitely like maybe a little, maybe a little questionable because it's like, I'm sure you've talked about this more in episode, in episode four with Chris, but it's sort of my impression that like, there's these different stages of evolution of a disk, and so there's times when there's a lot of gas and there's a lot of dust, and there's times when there's very little gas and most of the dust, most of the rocky material has accreted into sort of planet embryos, and so I guess we're supposed to be seeing it at that time where most of the gas has blown off or been lost or been accreted onto somebody that we can't see in the images during the, uh, during the battle. But it looked to me like we weren't looking at planetary embryos so much as we were looking at meter scale asteroids, which I'm not sure. I don't study disks as my specialty, so I'm not sure if that's 
is there a stage of disc evolution where we have like meter-sized planetesimals? Yeah, without a lot of without a lot of gas and without right. a lot of dust for visibility issues. Definitely a later stage, that's for sure. <clears throat> okay, well, something we can return to after we dig more into the physics of, of planet formation. Okay, what else should we talk about? <laughs> we need oh. to talk about. Oh, go oh ahead. sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, I, just, <laughs> I was just thinking about um, it's. Going back to Klingons, it's so funny that like you guys sort of picked up on like sort of an East or Central Asian influence because um, I think with the um, original Klingons that were used in like the first Star Trek series, they were actually depicted as much more Asian looking, mm -hmm. which actually people took issue with because I mean obviously that's problematic and it also brought up memories at that time of Japanese internment camps. So I feel like they've definitely tried to move away from that sort of you know background, but. It's weird that like even when it seems unintentional, we sort of still get that feeling, get mm -hmm. that vibe from like these new Klingons. Yeah, very good point. Do we know the name of the actor who plays Sukufma? Chris Obi? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he looked super familiar under all of the prosthetics. Um, <laughs> but yeah, even their choice of actors, you know, having very, very dark-skinned Klingons be kind of the norm, it seems. Like Worf was like really important for that reason, Next Generation. I know, it, it muddles your perception of their culture as being like entirely Eastern influence, entirely African influence. It's, it's like, more like just a general other culture, it feels. Yeah, yeah. It's still somehow distinctive, you know. All right, let's talk about this opening sequence because that was a really kick-ass opening sequence, right? Or opening, opening credit sequence, I should yeah. say. Yeah, right, the, with the animations and the, the sketches, I, I really enjoyed that. And so I should say that Peter, Dyson, and I had lunch today and they released the opening sequence this morning, the opening credits um, this morning, just as like a teaser, two minute thing on YouTube. And so we watched this over lunch and Peter said, that looks very familiar when it was, it was basically, it looked like a landform, and they looked like it, it said that it looked like unmoisturized skin. <laughs> very unmoisturized. He was like, that, that looks familiar. I've seen that somewhere before. And then he Googled a picture of, of Mars, and it turns out that this, this thing, part of the opening sequence, is an inverted image of a crater on Mars called Victoria Crater. Victoria Crater in Meridiani Planum, home to the Opportunity rover. Which is really cool. So yeah. there, there is Mars on the opening credits, and maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll see the USS Discovery go to Mars one day. That would be really cool. So what, what is Mars about in the 23rd century? Yeah. Have we terraformed it? I don't know. By, uh, by the end of Star Trek Enterprise, we were terraforming Mars. That's right, that's right. Remind me about that. Yes, we just watched this yesterday to remind ourselves of what Star Trek is like. So, in uh, the last two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, actually, the very last two episodes, actually, Mike, no, Mike, there was the one last more two after episodes, that. Demons and Terra Prime, the end. Um, uh, the Enterprise crew is essentially recalled back to Earth to uh, take part in the formation of a proto federation. Long story short, there was basically a terrorist group who were afraid of humans intermingling with other species like Vulcans and Victorians and so forth. And so the two episode arc, which ends Enterprise, it is focused on the actions of this terrorist group trying to, trying to keep Earth 
first, or Terra Prime. Uh, and what ends up happening is that they use as their weapon a, a, a Technobabble array on Mars, and they travel there, and one of the coolest things, especially for people in our field, is that a shuttle pod flew by the Sojourner rover, renamed the Carl Sagan Memorial. Yeah, on Mars, yeah so. that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, so, just to clear things up here, Peter loves to say the Terra Prime is the last episode of it Enterprise, is. but it's not, actually. There it was one is. more that was made, and Peter just Stop. hates that episode. Stop. <laughs> so he thinks that's the last Don't episode. Break <laughs> um, and what else? Yeah, so we, we, we had to do a, a tech check to make sure that the streaming service worked, and I could hook my computer up to the TV, so we did this last night, and we watched <laughs> what Peter considers the last episodes of Star Trek to be created before Discovery. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Terra Prime and the the one that comes before Demons, they speak so well to what is going on today. Still. They're still so relevant because basically they deal with the idea of xenophobia. And at the beginning of the Federation, this was fear of the other and the other being just anybody who wasn't human. It's and remarkable. There were, I wish I could quote some of the episodes. There were definitely some that literally echoed what has been said now by certain people. <laughs> certain world leaders. Star Trek's been Yeah, <laughs> and so, and again, we see the same sort of sentiment coming from the Klingons here in the first two episodes of Discovery, right? Yes, yes, I love that. So, Takuma talks specifically about Vulcans and Andorians and Tellarites joining the humans as being very not good, very bad. And he seemed, he didn't, want his people to go the same way. They also had like a really, it was sort of a brief dialogue, not amongst, not among the Klingons, but among Michelle Yeoh and Sneepa Martin-Green and random annoying Admiral, Admiral, uh, Admiral Duke. They all tend to be annoying, right? All the admirals in Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, like a whole. Um, yeah. But uh, they had like a, that brief exchange or whatever. They were like, with all due respect, sir, it's like culture, like, don't confuse culture and race. But I don't know, I sort of like felt like that was a thread that they wanted to keep going because culture and race are distinct concepts but obviously like overlap and become entangled with one another. The human race is culturally distinct in some ways from the Vulcan race, but not necessarily, but not completely. Obviously like they found common ground and we see there's obviously like intermixing, like Sonequa Martin Green's character is literally like an adopted human child who grew up as a grew up as a Vulcan and stuff like that. So it's like for the Klingons, to what extent is their race tied to their culture? It seemed to be just like a very interesting and deep-seated idea. Because obviously, like, you know, you've got this group of outcasts that the rest of the Klingons had said, you're not Klingon, you're not worthy, but like their whole identity is based on how Klingon they are and other people aren't because of how much they culturally honor Klingonness, even though they don't necessarily look like the other Klingons or have the same quote-unquote pedigree like coming from a noble family or something like that. I'm, just, I'm super into that as something that's discussed on TV at all, you know, but then also like discussed in science fiction, which is one of the most powerful tools for talking about complicated and fraught issues. They don't, they don't ignore human race either, you know. He like gives like a snappy comment to like Sonequa Martin Green's character, um, Michael as well, about like you of all people 
should know not to judge people by their race. And it's like, go home. Like, <laughs> man, you know, she's definitely, you know, black female human raised by Vulcans on another planet. Like, she obviously she has a lot of, she has some very, she's definitely thought about race and culture and identity a lot more than like whatever, you know, what's his nuts. But like, <laughs> like, I have strong opinions about him and his blusteriness. Sure. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know super super interesting angle for them to take that like didn't seem like it was a throwaway line it seemed very like significant mm -hmm. like something they were going to pick up let's talk about michael burnham then tell me your thoughts I, i'm really intrigued by this character who is human who was raised on vulcan by Sarek, who is spock's dad and we learn that Sarek mind melded with michael when she was young and left part of his katra in her, which I didn't know you could do, just leave part of your katra, part of your Vulcan soul in somebody. That's like a horcrux. New. Like a horcrux. But okay. nice. But nice. <laughs> no, no murders. Um, and, and like, so maybe this is where his affinity for humans comes from. As we know, he marries a human and has a half-human, half-Vulcan child, which is the beloved Spock. So maybe having raised Michael Burnham, and having mind melded with her, maybe it played into that somehow. So very interesting to note, note the dynamic between Sarek and Michael. Another thing is that we have this flashback seven years ago when she first, when Michael first joins the Shenzhou and comes aboard and she's very stoic and very classic Vulcan, like you could see the Spockness exuding from her. And I, I was just so intrigued by that. I kind of want to see a story arc for Michael Burnham. From that point on, I want to know what the past seven years were like and that transformation of discovering her humanity and her emotions after having been raised on Vulcan. Other thoughts on Michael Burnham? I thought, I thought the acting just in that part where they go back to the flashback was incredible. Like yeah. you could just so clearly see the distinction between like the then and the now. I, I thought I thought it was really really good. And yet yeah. still being the same character. Yeah, 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 it was just so well done. Yeah, I'm a little obsessed mm -hmm. for obvious reasons because it's nice to have a black woman in Star Trek. Yeah, here, here. Since, you know, like since Michelle Nichols, um, which we've you know we've had some, but they've been minor or background or guest astronauts. You know, mm -hmm. so <laughs> it's uh, I talked in the previous episode that I did of your podcast about like how important Michelle Nichols was for my mother watching Star Trek when she was like a little girl mm -hmm. and how she would pretend to be she and she and her cousin um, my aunt Jackie would pretend to be Uhara's little sister you know and run around and just pretend that like oh Uhara's supposed to be like taking care of them so they live on the ship like don't worry about the details and that was just like the premise for all of like their like games when they were little and so like seeing Sonequa Martin-Green up there is like, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's my Michelle Nichols. It's like, it's my time. Like, <laughs> and she's not just, you know, and Michelle Nichols like broke down incredible barriers and everything, but you know, it's also, it's a different age, it's a different time. So she's communications officer and she's love interest and let's get her into a bikini, you know, which she looks great in, but also why? So it's like, so cool to see Sonequa Martin-Green's character. Like she's fluid and she's changeable, like you're saying. She's extremely imperfect. She's figuring herself out. She's young, she's hot-headed, but not hot-headed in the way that like young black women are often portrayed on TV as like, oh, I'm just gonna explode in there. Cause she's also a Vulcan, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I'm a little obsessed. Oh, just a little, just, just, just a little. A little. <laughs> I like, I just admittedly, I 
avoided reading a lot of information about discovery prior to watching it, so I don't know mm -hmm. how much was out there, but I did not realize that she was going to be the main character. And so that's just like an extremely heartening yeah. and exciting surprise for me that she's like this pillar upon which the rest of this plot like or not pillars not the right architectural world fulcrum fulcrum sounds sure. good there we go <laughs> a fulcrum upon which the rest of the, the plot uh sort of hangs so i'm definitely obsessed with that and also let me just say what do you like was it like two weeks ago or something i like dressed up for work and you ran out of your office and you're like oh i thought Sonequa Martin-Green was here. <laughs> and I was like, that's it, I've peaked. <laughs> the best day of my life. Like, well, I was just, I had just pivoted. <laughs> so my desk is right next to the hallway and I was not actually working. I was watching a Star Trek Discovery um, interview with Sonequa Martin-Green and out of the corner of my eye, uh, it's it's uh, Cecilia is walking by and I was just like what she's actually like from my screen to like <laughs> my hallway <laughs> anyhow yeah. um, and how about Michelle Yeoh for all the the young Asian women out there right to see a really strong Asian female character in a major TV show I, I feel like I can't actually name a single other one maybe somebody else can but I can't yeah so I'm, I'm really sad that she died, though. Or I guess she's here to die. I don't know. I'm hoping that somehow she, like, comes back. But... I can only hope that there are many flashbacks <laughs> going forward. I mean, there was a hint of that in the trailer with, with uh, Michael Burnham looking at her pin. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm hoping, uh, especially with the previous comment that was made with her starting out very Vulcan and ending up kind of in between I'm really hoping that we're going to get flashbacks to those scenes as she's slowly adjusting to human life. Yeah. They must. Michelle Yeoh is like, she's such a big deal. Her character, her identity, like, represents so much, but just, like, Michelle Yeoh, the person, is, like, a really big deal. My roommate thinks she is from Malaysia and was just, like, telling me, like, oh, yeah, like, she literally has, like, one of the highest honors, like, a creative can have bestowed upon them, you know, by the, Mala by the Malaysian government for all of her contributions. And she's like, they can't, they're not going to get rid of her completely after these two episodes. I really, really hope the flashback thing happens super regularly so we get to see their relationship develop and get to see, like, all of the influences that she's had on, on Michael's thinking. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah, just like Sarah looks like will be a constant mentor for Michael Burnham, I'm hopeful. I'm hoping that Michelle Yeoh will also be there once in a while. All right, so we're we're almost out of time. So let us just go around and say if you have something that you hope to see in the next episode or a couple of episodes of Star Trek Discovery, something you're hoping for, and or something that you saw in these episodes that you think we should touch on again in more depth and talk about after doing a little research or, or grab somebody who knows something, uh, some more about that, who'd like to start us off? You gotta think. Okay, everybody just take a moment to think. That's fine. <laughs> I, I can think of something that I hope I don't see for at least like a few episodes, maybe never. I'd be fine with that. But um, <laughs> is like mention of a love interest for like Michael mm. or uh, Michelle Yeoh's character because I feel like a lot of times when a woman takes like central stage in like any type of like sci-fi series or any type of series in general, 
there's always like this, oh, you know, she's got this romantic entanglement and it like, it just feels like such a silly trope that you always have to bring up when you have a female character. And I really appreciated the absence in these first few episodes and I hope it continues for a while, maybe forever. <laughs> On that note, I, I hope that the, the romance in this uh, series is fulfilled by the first two uh, openly gay couple um, who we haven't actually met yet. They're, they're going to be on the USS Discovery, and that is groundbreaking. Um, so maybe th that, can, that can fill that niche of whatever television you know, needs some romance on the show, and then that, that will be it. It won't be a big deal at all. I think I really want their, this is a silly thing, but I really want Michael to like develop kind of a distinctive costume or look outside of her like Starfleet identity so that I can, like, and quickly, so I can dress up as it. For, <laughs> for Halloween? <laughs> it's very important that this happened for me. But I also, yeah, I'm looking forward to the idea of fleshing out the world outside of the Starfleet rank and file. They hinted in sort of the stay tuned this season bit um, after the episode finished that, you know, if she's like basically headed for some kind of prison or penal colony or something like that and then gets diverted or whatever but it seemed like you know there was a lot of dialogue by these people that we haven't been introduced to yet and that seemed like those people were not in starfleet but they were human and talking about their frustrations maybe with starfleet or with like the things that we haven't that they, no one has discussed yet in this world, so I'm excited to sort of have that part of the universe fleshed out and to see people that are not perfect members of an institution who, no matter what hijinks they get up to, you know, next episode happens, they're still ranking officers and they still have medals and they still have respect when they're like, it's like, no, like, all bets are off. You've got rogues and possibly, like, terrorists and separatists, and I'm excited for that to get developed. Mm -hmm. okay, I've got two things. Both of them are, I guess, a little more technically. The first thing is, I think I, I really want to see more of the Klingon, more of their like whole nation building thing, both because it's a really great narrative thing, but also because like the way they use lighting in all of those scenes to like highlight the faces and all this, all that stuff, it was like almost, if, if you were looking at the lighting for a Klingon scene versus on the ship, they're almost like inverted like lighting and I thought that was such a cool like technique. I really want to see more of it. I, it's like cinematographically, it was awesome. And also, I thought the binary star disc thing, even though it may not be super like scientifically scientifically accurate, it definitely got me thinking. Like, huh? Like, why would they be at such oblique angles? Like, how did like how would that happen? Yeah. So I, I definitely want to see more like more interesting astrophysical scenarios that make me think about things that would be possible or maybe not. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, gets, gets you thinking about that kind of stuff. Definitely. Also on technical notes, in episode two, we saw Michael outwit the computer or something, or she had an argument with the computer, which was probably my favorite part, I think, because how many people can win an argument with a computer? It was an ethical argument too, so I think we need to figure out because you know artificial intelligence is something that is definitely rising up these days i was listening to another podcast about driverless cars right self-driving cars and like what ethical decisions they should make if they should encounter a situation where there would be an accident and who should they place in more danger should they safeguard the life of the 
the person in the car? Should they try to minimize the amount of lives that are injured or killed across the board? You know, these types of ethical decisions need to go into artificial intelligence. And obviously, by the 23rd century, you've got computers with all sorts of intelligence. Can you win an ethical, ethical battle with the computer? And Michael's proved that you can. And also, why did she have to win a battle with the computers? Because she needed to escape her prison cell and fly through space, through the vacuum of space, and said something about 15 seconds. In 15 seconds, there, you know, you would die. I can't remember the exact reason why. Respiratory, Respiratory stress. stress, right? I don't know anything about actually being in the vacuum of space. And so it'd be cool to either we do some order of magnitude calculations about that, <laughs> that thing, or we get somebody who's actually thought about it as their profession. What happens when you're actually just exposed to the vacuum of space? And how long can you survive? Yeah, so I have, like I said before, I have lots of thoughts. I guess to condense uh, two points related to previously uh, talked about was the cinematics of this pair of episodes. So. As, as Mike said, we watched two episodes of Enterprise last night, and also remembering Star Trek as it was in the previous century, <laughs> actually. Just thinking in terms of how the show was shot, it was very static. It was very, there wasn't much camera movement for various reasons. Maybe it was the style of the time, it was hard, but it's certainly more dynamic the way this particular show is shot. The lighting, looks incredible, CGI of course looks incredible. So all of that, just saying that Star Trek has now entered essentially the 21st century in terms of filmmaking. I mean, it's a TV show, but in terms of just shooting a dramatic narrative on the screen. So I, that is amazing, and I can't wait to see all the possibilities that arrive with that. And also, in terms of the science of it, we know a lot more about space, particular planets beyond our solar system since 2005, which is when Enterprise ended. So even if it's not the focus of the show, the, the show, focus of the show uh, seems to be about the coming war with Klingons, in particular uh, Michael Burnham and her crewmates, but if they can just name drop some interesting exoplanet stuff in there, uh, <laughs> that would be very like, oh, today we just, we just looked at a hot Jupiter. Okay. That's cool. And then, you know, we, we fought a battle with Klingons and I said, all right, okay, we're talking about Klingons now. Okay, bye. You know, we could, we could talk about that Jupiter more, but okay, we're also fine. I'm also okay if you guys go on and talk about Klingons. So I, I, I am looking for, I hope they do it. Clearly they've shown the, the, the binary star and the protoplanetary disk, but we'll see where they go with that. So it's, it's very exciting. And it's the first Star Trek show that ended in a very strange way. All the other shows were essentially open-ended. Voyager was probably the only one that was very directive. They're going home, but now we ended with our main character going to prison, what looks like for life, but not really. So the possibilities are out there. It's, I, I don't know, it's, it's gotta be fun. It's gotta, it's gotta be fun. Jason, send us home. All right, um, so definitely what I'm looking forward to is the formation of the Klingon Empire and the Federation has to go along to pair with that. I think it, was, it will be very interesting to see what kind of like ideas, ideologies, beliefs are kind of, kind of rises to the top in the formation of what we eventually see as the Klingon Empire and how they define Klingon as both race and empire. And um, I, would, I really want to see like how do those two kind of complement each other or support each other or not? What are like the kind of the fracture points within those definitions? And from those fractures, like what rises to the top. 
I just like just seeing this episode is very interesting. Seeing like um, you know that outcast Klingon, he um, said, you know, I'm not Klingon, I'm not honorable by blood, I'm honorable by faith. And so it's just saying that okay, there's something else that defines me as a Klingon. Therefore, it's pins by faith, not blood, and therefore we should kind of organize around this idea of like faith or action of what he kind of represents. And it's interesting seeing the council come together, you know, they're all very distraught, but the, the leader, well, Tacoma cites like mythology, like Kalos, using the light, you know, the, the beacon that he sends out to space that draws 24 houses. It's very interesting to see how even in light of their kind of fractures, you know, they come together because um, they share this mythology and the leader Tacoma, like Tacoma, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tacoma <laughs> cites mythology as a unifying kind of factor for the Klingon. So it's interesting to see how that mythology idea bridges the Klingon empire, but also for him, like what does he think of Klingon as a race that belongs in this empire? If maybe, is this race through blood, is this race through faith or belief? Yeah. So, okay. That would be very interesting. Lots of things to look forward to. We can all do this again next Sunday. Watch episode three. Well, I guess Peter can't, but yes. Bye back home. Good luck. Good luck at Berkeley, Peter. I hope you find some Trekkie friends up there. Go Bears. (laughs) Go Bears. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Strange New Worlds, and uh, we'll see you again soon. I hope you enjoyed hearing our gut reactions to Star Trek Discovery's premiere. If I had to sum up my feelings in three bullet points, they would be one, I really love seeing the Star Trek universe from the vantage point of a flawed, non-captain main character. Two, I still find how different the Klingons are a little weird. Like, I don't really know why they're all bald. And I know it might just be an aesthetics thing that I have to get over, but as a lifelong Star Trek fan... I thought I knew what a Klingon was, and my preconceptions are being challenged, and honestly, that's a little unnerving. But I'm looking forward to learning more about the backstory that the Discovery writers give to these Klingons, and I hope that it's complex and compelling, and it makes me question every once in a while whether or not they are truly so bad, so evil. Three, I'm sad. I mean, Captain Giorgio died, and I really hoped that she would survive, but hey, she's a part of the canon now, and no one can take that away. An Asian woman captain of a starship, with a black woman first officer, there's seven years of history that novels and comics and flashback scenes can tap into that I just can't wait to explore. And with that, I'll bid you farewell. Enjoy episode three of Star Trek Discovery, and I'll see you out there.